Good morning. Welcome once again. We are continuing our study this morning in Second uh, Thessalonians. We're picking up again in chapter 2. Last week we looked at the man of lawlessness, uh, this uh, person who would come towards the end before the Lord Jesus returns, uh, who would lead many astray. Um, it was a, a, a difficult passage, in some ways a, a challenging uh, passage to understand, um, but it was also a passage to remind uh, the Thessalonians that, that Christ hasn't returned yet, that we still await his return. But at the end of that passage, uh, in uh, chapter 2, right before our, right before our text, uh, we noted uh, that there would be a hardening of hearts. There would be uh, those that did not love the truth, who themselves did not follow God, uh, but feigned faith that God would actually uh, cause them to not understand the gospel, that he would turn them away. And I think that the Thessalonians probably found that a difficult word. Who is he talking about? Am I one of those that could turn away from the truth? Um, there's, a, there's a fear that, that I think the Thessalonians had. And the Apostle Paul then takes time to encourage the Thessalonians, to remind them of the gospel. And that's the section we're looking at today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Uh, you can read along with me in your bulletins or your Bibles. This is God's word, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. So, again, I'm going to back up just a little so you get the context. Therefore, God sends them, those that don't love the truth, that refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may, uh, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the context. Here's our text for this morning. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits, or chose you from the beginning, depending on the translation, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning and that you would apply it to our hearts by your spirit. Help me as your servant to be faithful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and that in it we would find comfort and hope. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a lot in this text um, that we're going to look at, but we have to begin in maybe a difficult part Uh, at the beginning, just theologically speaking. Um, The conversation that I often have goes something like this. So, you're a Presbyterian, huh? Does that mean you are a Calvinist? 
Uh, and yeah, yeah, you could say I'm a Calvinist. Interesting. As a look of fear kind of washes over the person's face and dread crosses their face. Are you one of those extreme Calvinists? Those hyper-Calvinists? And at this point, I usually assure the person that I, I don't bite. It's okay. I don't bite. Um, and that the doctrines surrounding election and predestination are indeed difficult for us to understand. And that Scripture holds the truth's intention that we are free, and yet that God is sovereign. And those are challenging theological ideas that we must wrestle with. Um, and however we might articulate these truths, I tell the person that I'm talking to, however we might wrestle with those, we can both agree on this truth, that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we stand there and we can take a deep breath. <laughs> a look of relief will spread across the face and we can move on to less difficult, challenging topics. And I highlight this kind of conversation that I have not infrequently to remind you all that the topic of predestination and election is a delicate and challenging topic. One that I think, when grasped properly, does give great comfort and encouragement to the believer. And I think we'll see that in our text this morning. Um, nevertheless, it is not, I don't think, the sort of means or tool of evangelism. Right? Go out and use that as our, our, our way to bring uh, people to faith. Uh, and our Westminster Confession of Faith, this is our, our documents that we hold to as sort of summarizing what we believe is taught in Scripture, say this to this very doctrine. They say the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men and women attending to the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience to it may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, of their calling, of that reality that they are loved by God, can be assured of the, their eternal election, their eternal salvation. So shall this doctrine afford matters of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, and of diligence, and of abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Do you catch all this very careful language that says this is a mystery. This is to be handled with prudence and care. This is meant for consolation. It's not a topic to be avoided. It's something we need to examine because we see it here in our text. And as the confession puts it, it's meant to console us and to encourage us and to press us on in faith. So, with that little caveat, I want to go to what Paul has here for us because this is where Paul begins. He is saying after that difficult word concerning apostasy and lawlessness and condemnation and judgment that we just looked at last week, he's saying, don't forget God's eternal love for you. And I think this is something we all need to be reminded of as believers. God's eternal love love, that he loves us because he loves us. Friends, believers, beloved of God, give thanks. Stand firm in Christ. 
the one who shares his glory with you, the one who grounds you in his truth and grants to you his sanctifying spirit, beloved of God, give thanks and stand firm for the Lord Jesus Christ showers you with his love. We're going to look at this topic and and, and the consolation that we find in this text in three ways. Uh, Beloved of God, give thanks and stand firm. First, in God's eternal love. Second, give thanks and stand firm in the provision of the triune God for you, that he provides for all your needs. And finally, give thanks for and stand firm in the hope of glory in Jesus. That's where we're headed this morning. But first, give thanks for and stand firm in God's eternal love. Now, I opened with that little story, and some of you laughed as you've had similar encounters, or maybe you were one of those, or you still are one of those that is a little wary of uh, the Calvinist in your midst. Um, But others of you may have no idea what I'm talking about with regard to election and predestination. In this case, I want to encourage you uh, afterward, if you have questions, to come and talk to me. On the other hand, if you are there and you're a little wary, I want to encourage you, if you have questions afterward, to come and talk to me. I'm happy to talk to you. I won't bite, I promise. But whether we like it or not, Scripture talks a lot about this topic. Whether it's here in 2 Thessalonians, where it says here, God chose you as the first fruits. And there's a little textual notation there in, in your Bibles. You might see it. Uh, first fruits may mean uh, beforehand instead of first fruits, and we'll come to that later. But God chose you either beforehand or as his first fruits, and we'll look at that. But we also read it in places like Ephesians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in, hev- in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Or Jesus himself in the Gospel of John, when he says this in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Or in John chapter 17, where The Lord Jesus prays to his heavenly Father, saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. These are just a few of the texts in Scripture that touch on this topic. So it's not an insignificant topic. Um, But I want to just say a, a couple things about it as we look at our text. And the very first thing, the most maybe significant thing that I want to point out here is the basis of election. The basis of God's choosing is his love. Okay? The basis of his choosing is his love. And this is what we see at the outset in verse 13. It says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, or brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord. This is the most foundational truth. God's love is the grounds or basis of his choosing. 
And there's context here that I've already mentioned. Paul has just been talking about the signs of the second coming. He's focused on the man of lawlessness. He's talked about lawlessness being sort of in uh, the, the, the hearts of people. He's talked about those who don't love the truth, who turn away from God. And he describes them as those who refuse to love the truth and to whom the Lord, in fact, sends a strong delusion that they might not know, that they might be believe in false things, that they might ultimately be condemned. Now, as I noted earlier, the sensitive Christian will ask him or herself, am I that person? Is that me? Will I turn away? I'll be honest. I have these questions. I'm somebody who struggles with sin. I'm somebody who doesn't always love the truth. I, I, I look after and search after other things. Maybe you're like this. Great fear and anxiety can overcome you. Doubt about your salvation can overwhelm you. You can sit there worried constantly. Have I kept up my end of the bargain? Have I done what I've needed to do? Or, or am I going to be like those people that he mentioned in the latter days? I know that I've slumped into this kind of despair. Paul recognizes this and so reminds the Thessalonians, hey, listen, we are so grateful to God for you, you dear church. And we ought always to thank God for you because you are beloved of God. Now, he calls them the first fruits. He says, God chose you as the first fruits. If you have uh, the ESV in front of you, it'll say something in the notation, something like some manuscripts says, chose you from the beginning. So is it from the beginning or is it first fruits? And I'm going to be honest, having read as much as I can on this, I, I don't know. And the scholars are uncertain. The translators are uncertain. And so what is the distinction, distinction between these two things? And does it greatly affect the way we view the scripture? I don't think so. Uh, but the distinction here is the first fruits would reflect something to the effect of uh, you've been chosen as the first fruits, those who have first come to faith in the region, say in Macedonia, as those who are the first to come to faith, to, to trust in the Lord Jesus. You are chosen as the first fruits. Um, one of the problems with this translation is that uh, the first fruits might be the Philippian church instead of the Thessalonian church, since Paul went there first in Macedonia. Maybe he's just simply talking about Philippi. I, I don't know. So that's one possibility. If it is from the beginning, this is common Pauline language to talk about uh, God's choosing before the foundation of the world. Uh, those whom he loves. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 1, which we read just a few minutes ago. Um, but either way, with whichever one we decide to go with, the emphasis is on God's love in choosing a people for himself. That's the emphasis here, to bring about salvation. But here's another question that comes up. How does Paul know this about the, 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 the Thessalonian church, right? How can he, with definitiveness, say they're chosen? Um, I want to lay a little caution here. Not one of us knows the hearts of another man or woman. Not one of us knows. Paul doesn't know the ultimate end. 
But, and, and, and that's an important truth because that, that, that distinguishes then how we view one another. One, one is uh, we are not judging somebody's heart in that ultimate sense and we always treat them with, with graciousness and, and realize that they are somebody uh, whom the Lord uh, may or may not have chosen. We don't know. That's not ultimately up to us, but we treat them as, as a believer or as one who needs Christ whichever the case may be, but we move towards them in love. But I think Paul here, when he says this, is basing it on what he's observed. He's not speaking to to them as individuals, but as a group of people. He's talking to them as the church, as those sort of broadly come together who've put their faith in Christ. And Paul is basing this on what he has observed. So he's not making some ultimate definitive statement that only God himself can make, but he's saying, what I see, what I've observed, gives me great comfort and hope that you are God's people, beloved by God. We see this in verse 13. He says, we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In other words, you have shown forth fruit of the Spirit, sanctification. And you have shown forth faith, your, your acceptance of what is true, right, and good. What comes from God's Word are both evidences of this underlying truth. It's what evidence of God's love. Now, it's really important here that we make a distinction, a very clear distinction. This is evidence. The Apostle Paul can give with great confidence these words, beloved by God. But here's the the caveat. This is evidence of God's love, not the grounds of God's love. Not the grounds, right? So their fruit of the Spirit, their walking in faith, their trusting in Jesus is evidence, but it is not the grounds. It's not the basis of God's love. There is a profound mystery here that cannot be denied because our natural reaction to the, tr- to the truth, God loves you, is to say, but why does God love me? What, what is it that I've done that God, when I look at my heart, when I look at my life, I can't understand why God would ever love me. I don't know why he would love me. I don't deserve his love. I am a selfish Sinner who seeks after my own pleasure, often willfully and pridefully turning away from him. I just don't deserve his love. Why does God love me? And here's the mystery. I've already said it, and I'm going to keep saying it. He loves you because he loves you. That's a mystery. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you even while you were yet his enemy. He loved you and he died for you. And that makes absolutely no sense at all. But it's true. And the proof is in the pudding. The proof of his love is in the pudding. Uh, And what is the proof? Well, the proof is that evidence. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Isn't this good news? You and I no longer are what we once were. As believers, 
but rather we've been set apart, made holy. We've been transformed. We're being transformed. We are not what we once were. That's proof of God's love. That he's applied to you his Holy Spirit, and it's at work in you. Brother and sister, this is the wonder of his love. And this is another proof of God's love that you believe in Jesus. Believer, your faith, the fact that you stand and say, the Lord Jesus is my Savior, is a sign of his love towards you. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that by grace you've been saved, and this is through faith, and that's a gift. It's not anything you've done. It's a given instrument of God's grace by which you are shown to be loved by God. Friend, if you're here, and this all sounds interesting, but you want to know more about this love, I want to encourage you. The love of God is offered to you freely. The Lord Jesus says, believe in him, trust in him, rest in him, and you will be saved. Not by anything you do, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's it. The love of God for you. So Paul encourages the church. You are beloved and have been given the spirit that sanctifies and gives faith that clings. So one thing I know I need to do personally is I need to stop looking at my sin and start looking at my Savior. What about you? Because I know I spend too much time doing that and not enough time looking at Jesus. No matter how often we sing of God's love and grace, it is too easy for us to spend time gazing at our sin and our failures and to think God's love and grace is just not sufficient for me. Believer and friends, there is nothing more secure, more sure, more solid than the eternal love of God. Give thanks for it. Stand firm in it. The eternal love of God for you. Second, give thanks and stand firm in the provision of the triune God. Out of the storehouse of God's love that we just looked at comes all the provisions that we need for standing firm in our faith. I want you to notice a few things first. One is the provision comes from the triune living God. Uh, we see the Trinity packed in here. And, and I, and I want to highlight this because sometimes we're curious... Do we actually see the doctrine of the Trinity anywhere in Scripture? Well, let me tell you, right here we see it. We see it uh, in, 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 in so many ways. He actually kind of does it twice in our text. First, we notice here, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called us through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see the love of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? could be said differently, but that's how the Apostle Paul says it here. And again, he says it later on in verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us the eternal comfort, when you see that word, and good hope through grace, he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but oftentimes that's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. He stands in the background a little, but here we see it. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. One of those 
beautiful pictures throughout this little section of the triune God. And this God gives us provision. Gives us provision. And I want us to look at the provision here. Um, He gives us all that is necessary for us to stand firm. And he grants it to us freely. The first thing that we note is calling. Right? We see this at the beginning, at the outside of the text. He says uh, this, to this he called you through our gospel. So calling through our gospel. What is that? Um, there's a theological term that we'll sometimes use, which is called the effectual calling. Effectual calling is just simply the way we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit that takes God's word word and opens our hearts and applies that word to us so that we're able to trust in Jesus. It's tied to this idea of new birth, of regeneration, of, of becoming alive. God takes the word and he impresses it upon our hearts so that we would trust in him. That's calling. And that's a gift. That's a provision of God for you. That he takes the word and applies it to our hearts. That we would believe and trust. Next time you find yourself before the Lord and His Word, and you don't understand it, and you say, Lord, open my heart to see it, you're taking hold of it, in a sense, the provision of God and in, in, in the power of the Spirit to apply the Word to our hearts. Now, He applies it very spe- specifically when we are called uh, to salvation. Sort of that beginning moment of regeneration and new birth where he opens our hearts. But on a daily basis, he takes his word and applies it to our hearts by his spirit. The Lord calls you. And he calls you by the good news. Did you notice that language of good news? We take that gospel language really very, as Christians particularly, we just throw it around. Gospel this, gospel that, gospel this, gospel that. Good news uh, we, need to, we need to say what that is clearly. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know what the good news is, I want you to listen very carefully to this. The Lord calls you by his word with the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life. This same God who comes in the flesh like us, representing us, lived a perfect life, and yet because of our sin... He went to the cross and took upon himself the wrath and curse of God for us and died in our stead. You see, the problem is we're sinners and we deserve the wrath and curse of God and we deserve death. And yet Christ stood in our place and said, I will take it upon myself. And he died. He was crucified. He endured all the the hell that you can even imagine. He endured the very wrath of God for us. But he broke that curse of death on the cross. And he broke the curse of death by rising again, conquering sin and death. And in, after rising again from the dead, securing for us salvation, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for us as our high priest. He is somebody who grants to us his Holy Spirit and newness of life. And he is coming again to bring us home to glory. We no longer have to face the grave. And what does he require of you? He says, nothing. Just trust. Believe that I have accomplished what I set out to accomplish. And this salvation, this good news, that there's nothing that you need to do but trust in me. 
Friend, if you're here this morning, that's what the call of the gospel is. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. If you're wrestling with your guilt and shame, you know you failed. You fail even in the things that you want to do, you don't do. Never mind what God requires of you. Trust in Jesus. He calls you. But he not only calls you, he sanctifies you by his Holy Spirit. He gives you what you need to live. What a gift. He sends to you the power of his Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter in his letter, his first letter, uh, uh, or second letter, says says these words uh, with regard to the power uh, of the Holy Spirit. I just want to read them to you. He says this, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things, to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. This is Peter saying what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises that, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is why you ought to make every effort to, to live. And he says, you've been given divine power. That's the grace of the Holy Spirit. He gives you everything that you need. You know, it's interesting uh, to think about this idea of the grace of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, because I don't, I don't personally, I'll speak for myself, I don't personally always believe it to be true. I don't know about you, but I often think, God, you have not given me what is necessary to fight off this sin. And yet scripture clearly says, no, no, I have. I've given you my spirit, the giver of life. The one who brings you, takes your heart, changes it from that heart of stone, makes it a heart of flesh, makes it beat for me. That same spirit at work in you, the one that gives life, empowers you to walk in newness of life. Find comfort. Stand firm in that reality. You've been given the provision of the Holy Spirit for your sanctification, for your growth in grace. Not only does he give you his spirit for sanctification that we see here in the text, but he also gives you faith itself. We, we don't often think of faith like that. We think of faith as something we offer. Apostle Paul's really clear. Faith is a gift. It's an instrument. It's, it's the way in which we lay hold of Christ. But even that faith is a gift of God, that, that we are given that Because let me ask you, if it was up to you, in all your strength and power, would you always hold on to Christ? I wouldn't. But faith is a gift. It's part of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to lay hold of Christ. He provides for you faith. So he provides for you calling. He He calls you effectually. He gives you his Holy Spirit to work in you. He even gifts you faith. And there's other provisions here. Look at verses 16 and and 17. Uh, You've been given eternal comfort, hope through grace, grace itself, comfort in your hearts 
um, good work. These are all things, provisions of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, and something he has stated throughout this whole section, the gift of his word. Notice how it permeates this section here. At the beginning, he's, the, the Apostle Paul's thanking the Lord for this church, and he says, uh, he thanks them because of their belief in the truth. And then the next verse, it says, to this he called you through our gospel. And then he says later in verse 15, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, when we hear the word traditions, we think negative, like church traditions. No, the Apostle Paul is, what he's describing here is, remember, they don't have the New Testament yet. He's talking about all that he has proclaimed to them. So he's saying, whether I preached it to you or whether I handed it to you in a letter form, you're holding fast to this truth, to God's word, right? And then in verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Again, the gift and provision of God's word. Friends, the world and all its pleasures cause a great challenge to us. We don't think that we are equipped to face the world. We look at the philosophies of the world coming at us regularly and daily, and we we think we don't have the right stuff to combat what's coming at us. These pleasures, I don't have enough information to know how how to resist it. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, no, no, wait a minute. I've given you my word. I often find myself as a parent wanting to run away from the world altogether. I want to take my kids, build a bunker somewhere without internet, without the constant bombardment of destructive ideas. I want to run away and hide because I don't think I'm prepared. I don't think I have what is necessary. But here, the living God, creator of heaven and earth, the redeemer, the one who loves us because he loves us for no other reason other than his divine, wondrous, mysterious love, provides all that we need for life and godliness. And as we read earlier, as was read earlier, this is the armor of God, that we would be well-equipped, ready for the battle, He's given us everything that we need. Yes, they're real spiritual battles that we face. Yet he gives us what we need. He provides for us his word. He provides for us our salvation, his love, his calling, his effectual calling. He provides for us the Holy Spirit. He gives us comfort and grace and faith. He gives us all that we need. Stand firm. Give thanks to God and stand firm. The triune God has given you everything. And then my last, and this is my final point in conclusion. Give thanks for and stand firm in the hope of glory. Friends, we look at this world and all the ills that we face, and we think, am I going to make it? Well, God said to us that he loves us because he loves us. And we know from Scripture that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And what does that mean for us? That means we have a living hope. A hope 
That does not disappoint. We see it here in the text. In verse 14, it says, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He provides everything that we need and way more. He provides for us glory. Not glory that is derived somehow from ourselves, but glory that comes from God himself. An eternal glory. As salvation, as the Apostle Peter says, ready to be revealed at the last time, held in heaven for us. Even though now for a little while we face various trials, but he equips us. He loves us from the foundation, before the foundations of the earth. He equips us for our life in this world, and he brings us home to glory. Stand firm. Give thanks. What a God we have. A God who loves us because he loves us, who brings us home to glory. Let's pray.